I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. I never wish to be a millionaire. This isn't the way we usually begin these podcast episodes about Barnum's copybook letters, but we just can't resist telling you right away that we've come to a letter which tells us that at long last, P.T. Barnum knows his wife Charity is with child. We discover this in two letters, one written on December 19th, and the other on December 21st, 1845, only ten weeks before his fourth daughter, Pauline, would be born. Indulge us for a moment. We had been concerned that Barnum's lack of awareness of Charity's condition was putting a strain on their relationship, he believing that her loneliness and health complaints were nothing compared to what he was suffering on his own in Europe, and that her low spirits had no real cause. We'll get to that story after we explore a letter that shares Barnum's thoughts on personal wealth, honor, and gulling the public. But at least you know where we're headed. Back in December of 1841, four years prior to the letters we are reading, Barnum had done very well for himself convincing the owner of the marble building at Broadway and Ann Street to take a chance on him as the buyer of Scudder's American Museum and its collections, which occupied much of the marble building. Francis Olmsted was the building's owner, and through a clever purchasing arrangement Barnum had made with Olmsted, he became the American Museum's proprietor, beating out a group of investors who fully expected to become the owners. Barnum was soon so successful with his museum business that he was able to pay off the debt in less than two years. As grateful as Barnum was to have gained Olmsted's trust at a time when he had little money to his name, his ongoing relationship with his landlord seems to have been prickly, or so the letters suggest. Over the course of late summer and fall 1845, disagreements emerged time and again in their correspondence concerning a woman employed at the museum, whom we only know as Francis, spelled with an E, the feminine spelling of the name. Francis had worked there for years prior to Barnum becoming the museum's proprietor, and she and Olmsted both felt she deserved a higher salary than anyone else Barnum could hire to do her work. At one point, she left the job, but she eventually returned. Barnum was miffed about the incident, 
as he felt he had been doing right by keeping her on, when he could have hired another female person for less money, including his own sister who was greatly in need of money. Despite that, he had deferred to Olmsted's wish that Francis stay. While the back and forth on that topic is of moderate interest, it is the result of that discussion, spawning Barnum's comments on the subject of money and wealth, that is most striking in his letter of December 17, 1845. Barnum made his point to Olmsted in no uncertain terms when he wrote, You say that although you are poor yourself, you have through life had intercourse with men of such fortunes that mine would be comparatively small. I was obliged to laugh upon reading this, first at the idea of your calling yourself poor, second at the thought that you supposed I fancied myself rich. I guess your poverty will never be the death of you, and I trust my riches will not keep me awake nights. No, sir, I am neither rich, nor do I ever expect or hardly wish to be. I only ask for a comfortable independence, which will supply me with the comforts of life for self and family, and give me always a shot in the locker for the benefit of any unfortunate friend who may apply for relief. I never wish to be a millionaire, for I can be happier without being so, and I do not love money well enough to make myself an eternal slave in guarding it. But if I know my own heart, I wish to see all men prosperous and happy, and ask nothing which is not clearly right from any man or woman living. When persons can truly assert that I am penurious and do not render full value for all services rendered, then I would despise myself. But when my purse, small as it is, is to be made the foundation for increased demands on it, I bolt. Today, many people casually refer to P.T. Barnum as a huckster, scammer, or con artist who swindled his audiences, characterizations that hardly seem fair when one understands the nature of popular entertainment in that era. In Barnum's time, a lot of entertainment was based on displaying the incredible, things that captured people's attention, amazed them, and made them talk. Needless to say, there was no Internet or National Geographic magazine to showcase the wonders of the world. These incredible things were sometimes real and sometimes not. Or the things might be real enough, but were paired with stories that were loosely truthful, imaginative tall tales. Barnum's museum contained thousands of genuine artifacts and artwork. Granted, he did have copies of famous paintings made, but he relied on having some quirky and questionable things to get people in the door. Mainly, he wanted people to be curious and to enjoy and return to his museum, bringing their friends. Think of the new inventions he was showing, projections on a huge screen, all kinds of technological wonders of the day. As far as the humbugs, he was far from being the only showman fooling people, and he made it a point to stay clear of out-and-out -out hoaxes, which he regarded as cruel, in contrast to a humbug's simple purpose to amuse and entertain. In this next part of Barnum's letter to Olmsted, he provides some insight into his views on interacting with the public versus interacting with individuals. As for the public, I look upon it quite different from an individual. The truth is, the public are not always the most just nor benevolent body that we can conceive of, and therefore I can sometimes see them done without shedding many tears. 
and I do not consider a man as being swallowed up in moral turpitude because he gulls the public a little occasionally, if he will at all times be strictly honorable in all his intercourse with individuals. Signing off with a gesture of friendship, he wrote, Hoping to soon have the pleasure of taking you by the hand, I am, dear sir, as ever your sincerest and grateful friend, Old Barnaby. The latter refers to the character name Barnaby Diddledum from a series Barnum had written in 1841 for the New York Atlas, a Sunday paper. Olmsted probably first learned of Barnum from an editor of that newspaper, who had vouched for Barnum at the time he was trying to purchase the American Museum. One can imagine that ever after, Olmsted referred to Barnum as Old Barnaby, since the story series drew heavily on Barnum's own adventures. Leaving Barnum's thoughts on wealth, honor, and gulling the public, let's turn to a very different topic, but one that is also important to understanding Barnum's character. Over the course of several months of correspondence with Charity, after her return to Connecticut from Europe, it appears their relationship had become strained. Charity must have expressed her loneliness as well as some health issues, and Barnum did not respond with much sympathy. He felt that her complaints were minor compared to the severe homesickness he was suffering. He did not think her low spirits had a real cause, and he seemed to be impatient with her, as well as envious that she could enjoy time with their daughters while he missed them terribly. But we know something that Barnum did not know that summer and fall, and that is that Charity was pregnant with their fourth child. Charity had not told him of her condition, and he had not figured it out. At long last, two letters dating from the latter part of December, just ten weeks before baby Pauline's arrival on March 1st, alert us to Barnum's new awareness that his wife was with child. Barnum's long letters to his museum manager, Fortis Hitchcock, who was both an employee and a trusted friend, not only provide details of his plans for the American Museum, but also insights into more personal matters. Barnum hinted on more than one occasion that he not only valued their relationship, but saw with pleasure signs that mutual good feelings were budding in their respective families, and hoped the Hitchcocks and Barnums would soon enjoy one another's company as close friends. So it is not surprising that Barnum wrote about the conflicting emotions he was experiencing having learned of Charity's pregnancy, and thus realizing that her pleas for him to return home sooner rather than later had been justified. Sharing his feelings, he wrote, I very much wish to sail for home 1st February, on account of the situation of my family, writing runs off the bottom of the page. I determined at all hazards to go, but considered the dangers of crossing in the winter in a steamer as well as the very great sacrifice I should make in going at this moment, when for the first time in six months there is a little prospect of making something. I think we shall not sail till March or April. God only knows, however, how much I suffer in thinking of my family and the many painful regrets I should have during life for not returning, if anything serious should occur at home at the moment when every husband ought to be found at the bedside, cheering and soothing his wife but I must hope for the best. Barnum was also in touch with Mr. and Mrs. Henry Barnum, close friends who lived in Bridgeport and probably visited with Charity regularly. It may have been Mrs. Henry Barnum who hinted at Charity's pregnancy. 
In Barnum's December 19th letter to the couple, he noted, My agony at not being able to be home during the next two or three months is only allayed by the hope that you and other good friends will do all that you consistently can to soothe and comfort my dear wife. It is cruel that I have not gone home before this, and even now I sometimes determine to brave the fury of the Atlantic in winter, but believing it to be hazardous, of two evils I choose that which appears least, and remain, for should anything serious happen to me in crossing the ocean, my wife would never forgive herself for having urged it. He concludes his letter praying for Charity's health and the speedy and safe delivery of the baby. Curiously, it was Hitchcock, not the Henry Barnums in Bridgeport, to whom Barnum wrote and asked to have a book on childbirth purchased for Charity. Perhaps he knew that Hitchcock would be able to get the book in New York City more easily. This being Charity's fourth pregnancy, Barnum's notion to buy this book suggests that her previous three deliveries had not been easy, and knowing Charity's anxious disposition, he sought to lessen some of her fears. Barnum requested of Hitchcock, By the way, I beg you will not think me weak and old-womanish when I ask you to buy and send to my wife a book which I see advertised, under the title of Childbirth Without Pain. Of course, such a thing is impossible, and the book is probably a catch-penny affair. Still, it may contain some useful hints, and at worst, it will probably do no harm. So please, get and send one to her at once. It is cruel in me not to have been home ere this. A coincidence of history is that less than a week after Barnum penned this letter to Hitchcock, a groundbreaking event in obstetric analgesia occurred. On December 27, 1845, Crawford W. Long, a physician working in the state of Georgia, administered ether to his wife during childbirth, her second delivery. Prior to this, he had successfully used ether during surgeries, but never to diminish the pain of childbirth. According to Kat Ashner, author of the Smithsonian Magazine article, It Didn't Take Very Long for Anesthesia to Change Childbirth, Crawford Long did not publish the results of his work until the following decade the 1850s, and was thus not credited until recent times with his pioneering use of ether. The use of ether during childbirth was not without critics and skeptics. There were many people of the Christian faith who believed the pain women suffered during childbirth was ordained by God. It was for that reason, in Western culture, few efforts to reduce or alleviate the pain had been made up to that point. Barnum's universalist belief in a loving, rather than punitive, God may have influenced him to see things differently. Yet his expression of embarrassment after asking Hitchcock to send a book to charity tells us he was not wholly comfortable with his own feelings on the subject. However, these letters do indicate he was empathetic and willing to do whatever he could to ease his wife's anxiety and help her get through the delivery of their child while also easing some of the guilt he felt in not being with her. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment. A Desire to Save the Souls of Men In this episode, 
we have the opportunity to consider P.T. Barnum and religion through different lenses by exploring a couple of fascinating letters written in December of 1845 while he was in England. The two perspectives juxtapose Barnum's personal religious beliefs and values with his penchant for worldly success. In this case, having acquired a set of paintings of Jerusalem and the Holy Land with the intent of monetizing them as a display at the American Museum. Interestingly, he was targeting particular audiences whom he wished to persuade of the moral and religious instruction to be gained by visiting his museum. We find the contrast between Barnum the Man and Barnum the Businessman striking. Today, few people would think of P.T. Barnum as a religious person, but his spiritual relationship with God and unshakable belief in Christianity were an integral part of his life from the time he was a young man. He grew up during a period that historians refer to as the Second Great Awakening, a revival of fervent believers among Protestant denominations in America. Barnum himself was raised in the Congregational Church, which had been the powerhouse behind New England's colonial governments. In Connecticut, that standing order of elites remained in authority until 1818, long past the colonial era. Finally, in 1818, the state formed a constitution separating church and state and dissolving the Congregational Church's official status. As a teenager in the 1820s, Barnum became disenchanted with the Congregationalists' dogma regarding salvation. He turned instead to the Universalist teachings of a loving and forgiving God and the possibility of universal salvation. Barnum remained a Universalist his entire life and wrote an essay, Why I Am a Universalist, for a book of tracts published with his legacy gift to the Church. Although Barnum's deep faith in God has been revealed in brief references throughout the copybook letters, thus far nearing page 500, there have been few letters that dwell on the subject of religion, except for a couple of heated exchanges with his uncle Allenson Taylor, who was a staunch Congregationalist. Those letters are both long and quite repetitive in their content, so they have not yet been the subject of an episode. As you will recall, a letter written on December 19th to Mr. and Mrs. Henry Barnum, friends of the family, alerted us to Barnum finally realizing that his wife was well along in her fourth pregnancy. However, the majority of the letter concerns religion. Following a jovial, if pointed, criticism of his half-brother Philo, who had recently been awarded the position of Bridgeport's postmaster and was filling his station with more dignity than usefulness, Barnum commented on religious matters, touting his success in convincing others of the beliefs he avowed. Wicked fellow as I am, I am yet delighted to hear of the prosperity of what before God I believe to be the only true church and the only religion which can give unalloyed pleasure to the believer and render honor to the character of the Almighty. I sat up till after midnight last night, engaged in a discussion with a Protestant gentleman of liberal education, and before retiring, I had the almost inconceivable satisfaction of hearing him declare in the presence of a dozen persons that he believed the doctrine I had advanced to be true, but that he had never heard it before. The other persons present at the house of a friend here all appeared inclined to agree with him. Barnum stressed the importance of applying logic to religious doctrine, suggesting that it represented an advancement for humankind. 
he asked Mrs. Henry Barnum to give my respects and best wishes to the ladies, as well as gentlemen, of your little social band, and tell them to keep on the way rejoicing, for as sure as we are improving throughout the world in arts and sciences, just so sure is man breaking through that slavery of the mind, which has so long made babes and fools on the subject of religion, of men who in other respects professed giant intellects. In fact, Barnum's approach to defining a personal relationship with God was a modern concept that had come about with the Second Great Awakening. Nothing is truer than that the absurd doctrine of endless misery is receiving its death blow throughout the world. Every day do men learn more and more to venture to think without asking leave from the parson, and that is all that can be desired by the best friend of the human race. For if men will think, the idea of a god of unsatiable revenge is worse than ridiculous. It is blasphemous. Barnum went on to describe his correspondence with Allenson Taylor, the uncle who had become his guardian after Barnum's father died. My uncle Allenson and self have been carrying on a religious correspondence across the Atlantic, and while he has been begging me to save my soul, I have as earnestly implored him to cut off and burn up that branch of his creed which made God place one whom he had created beyond the power of repentance, or which made God under any circumstances, either in this or any other world, turn a deaf ear to the truly penitent sinner. The passages from Allenson Taylor's letter that Barnum quoted to Mr. and Mrs. Henry Barnum are rather convoluted, but the essential argument was that Barnum was countering his uncle's beliefs on matters of eternal salvation. Taylor appeared to have backed down and noted that he did not hold to an entirely contrary opinion as his nephew believed to be the case. Barnum quoted his uncle's concession. I fully grant your position. And if you mean by penitence, true gospel penitence, I believe God will receive and forgive that penitent sinner, even if he come from the lowest depths of hell. Further will I say with you, neither do I believe that God will put it eternally beyond the power of a being to repent with sincerity and truth. Barnum felt triumphant in reading these words, and told Mr. and Mrs. Henry Barnum, They afford me much, very much pleasure. Further, he noted, I'll not quarrel with such a doctrine as this, and I congratulate myself in no small degree for having brought such a concession from a man of the intellectual, argumentative, and somewhat stubborn powers and feelings of Mr. Allenson Taylor. Barnum also wrote to his close friend and the manager of his museum, Fordis Hitchcock, about Allenson Taylor, as the two men were apparently like chalk and cheese on the subject of religion, and other matters as well. Barnum had long tried to smooth the relationship as best he could. I am glad that you and Mr. A. Taylor have now a good understanding, but I at the same time not only agree with, but urge the continuation of your sentiments regarding my money affairs. Barnum, having loaned money to his uncle, was not confident he would pay the interest due or repay the debt, and thus advised Hitchcock to drop him a line or tell him that I informed you he would pay the interest yearly and that you shall expect it at that time. If he has not gone back to the Wheelers, same as before, he ought to return my $5,000. But no matter, if I lose that, I shall never lose another cent in the same quarter. Religion and money, two subjects people often argue about, form the segue to Barnum's December 30th letter to Hitchcock, 
describing how he acquired a religious novelty for the museum and his suggestions for promoting it and planning the display. The story begins. I have bought 12 religious views, mostly relating to Jerusalem. They were chiefly painted by Smith, the best painter in London. He has been dabbling on them for two years, for a rich fanatic in London who meant by their means to Christianize the world, by having some person show them at the fairs of England, etc. But when finished and a van built, no man could be found to take charge of them, for they knew that the rowdy mob attending a fair would not attend a religious show. Barnum then explains the predicament in which the rich fanatic found himself, while still refusing to give up on his plan of Christianizing people by displaying the paintings. The artist who painted them offered him the cost, about four pounds each. The Adelaide Gallery offered him five pounds each, and he would not sell to either, for he said the Adelaide was a worldly show, and these sacred views should not be exhibited in such a place. Then he lodged them at the Polytechnic Institute to be sold only to a religious institution. I applied and saw them, but as the Polytechnic folks knew me, they dared not sell them to me. They, however, gave me the address of the owner, and I wrote him saying that I was from the United States, that we had many wicked exhibitions there, and that as I felt a desire to save the souls of men, I should feel a great pleasure, such as the true Christian only knows, in being able to present those views to a religious society in my native town, of which I had the honor of being a humble member, but that I was poor in worldly goods, though I trusted I was rich in the grace of God. I could not afford to give a large sum for them. The letter convinced, or fooled, the owner of the paintings, who ended up receiving a fraction of what he could have gotten from the artist or the Adelaide Gallery. As Barnum noted to Hitchcock, the bait was swallowed, and I bought the twelve views for twenty-five pounds four, besides some eight shillings expended in cab hire, etc. Barnum then turned them over to a friend in London, who would take care of shipping them via steamer, so that Hitchcock would soon receive them. In preparation, Barnum concocted a plan to ensure the exhibition would attract visitors, and roped Hitchcock into it with the sly comment, As you are an ex-clergyman, I look to your giving these views a touch which will bring in the dollars, and if, as will probably be best, they are to be brought out at the museum, I would make a few suggestions which you may think over and be guided by them, or not. Barnum's few suggestions turned out to be a larger plan, so to keep this episode to a modest length, we'll just highlight his idea of targeting a specific audience leaving discussion of his more extensive ticketing strategies for another time. Barnum was, first and foremost, aiming to make this display palatable to the clergy, so careful planning was important to avoid the chance of causing offense and undermining the advertised wholesomeness of the museum experience. He recommended Hitchcock hire a gentleman who had had experience narrating a famous panorama of Holy Land scenes, Catherwood's Panorama of Jerusalem, and have him engage the audience by describing the views to create a sense of wonder and authenticity. Barnum wanted to build his audience from Sunday school scholars, which meant getting the buy-in of clergymen. To that end, he suggested that Hitchcock make up a moral performance on Wednesday and Saturday afternoons, neuroscope, physioscope, chromotrope, variety of views besides the religious, perhaps laughing gas and scientific experiments, but nothing objectionable to the clergy. 
Then he should prepare and send a circular to every clergyman in the city, enclosing a free ticket for two persons for any Wednesday and Saturday afternoon. In that circular, which C.D. Stewart or you can write, come the soft soap touch by talking about a desire to elevate the tone of amusements, to give them a moral and instructive turn, etc., etc. And for this end, Saturday afternoon, during the winter, such exhibitions will take place as will be calculated to please and instruct Sabbath school scholars, etc., and that in order to give the clergyman an opportunity of judging for himself before recommending it to his church, you enclose him a free ticket. And that if he approves of the exhibition, Sabbath school scholars will be admitted for ten cents each and a teacher to every ten or twenty scholars free. Barnum advised Hitchcock to follow this up with a slightly modified circular to be distributed to Sunday school teachers, also enclosing tickets, and another variation aimed at the editors of every religious and moral newspaper in New York, and enclosing a free ticket for two to each editor, inviting his opinion and assistance, etc. He then extended the reach, suggesting they send circulars to every clergyman and school teacher in Brooklyn, as well as in the city. Confident in his plan, he assured Hitchcock, Depend on it that this plan will gradually swell your receipts beyond your anticipations. But the subject must be matured. The circulars written to the purpose and the whole thing be well put upon the stage and such a variety of good exhibitions shown as must please the most fastidious. The bills for those afternoon performances must not be very blue, but must announce that the performances are of a nature calculated to please and instruct children, families, and the public at large. To borrow one of Barnum's favorite words, there was bound to be a lot of gammon, nonsense or chit-chat, in what was written in the circulars and handbills and said in narration. But if he played it right, these religious views could succeed in attracting local New Yorkers during the dull winter season, when tourists were scarce and profits at the museum were low. Who knows, perhaps Allenson Taylor himself will decide to visit the museum to see the Holy Land pictures. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.